Now it's my pleasure to introduce our co-presenter tonight, uh, and the man who I believe thought up this program. He is the director of the UCLA Ronald W. Burkle Center for International Relations. Please welcome Mr. Cal Rustiala. Okay, thank you, Gregory. Good evening, everyone. I first attended a Zocalo event, I think about two years ago, when Gregory invited me to moderate a discussion about the decline of American power. And I was very impressed with both the vision of Zocalo and also the approach that they had to it. And so when we first started discussing collaborating, uh, I was enthusiastic and I'm glad that we're starting this off. And I hope that we'll have many more sessions like this one. So I look forward to seeing you again here and elsewhere around town. Um, our, uh, let me say a word about the Burkle Center just so you know uh, who we are and then I'll, I'll, I'll introduce our special guest. So the Burkle Center is UCLA's primary uh, forum for international affairs. And our mission is to enrich the understanding of international affairs at the campus amongst our students, our faculty, and our staff. But of course, we're also a public university and we're open to the public and our events are all open, or I should say almost always open and free. So I encourage you to come to UCLA, see what we do. If you Google us, uh, if you just put in Burkle Center, you'll, you'll pull us up. You'll see uh, we have a great web page. I think our web uh, impresario is here tonight. It's a fantastic uh, page, lots of information, lots of things going on. It'll give you a sense of what we do. Unfortunately, we're about to sort of shut down for the academic year. The school is coming to a close. We do have a big event on Monday, a conference on China and the implications of China's rise for the international system. That'll be Monday all day. But then after that, we're gonna kind of shut down and begin again in September. But I urge you to, to, again, look at our page, see what we do, come to Westwood and see us there. So tonight's speaker, Isabel Coleman, is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, if you Google the Council on Foreign Relations, you'll find, well, many conspiracy theorists will tell you that it controls the US government and maybe even runs the world. And, I'll tell you that's not true, but they do have terrific people, uh, really fantastic experts in their think tanks, both in Washington and New York, and Isabel Coleman is one of those. She's the Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy and Director of the Council's Women and Foreign Policy Program. Her works appeared in Foreign Affairs, which is kind of the house uh, organ of, of the council, but also Foreign Policy, Financial Times, USA Today, Christian Science Monitor. You may have seen her on CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, etc. She's a frequent media commentator. As Gregory mentioned, her book, Paradise Beneath Her Feet, is just out, and that's the focus of her talk tonight. And so she'll be telling us more about how women are transforming, or being transformed, and in turn transforming the Middle East. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Isabel Coleman. Thank you, Cal. Thank you very much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. I, um, I had the very sad thought coming over here today that I've actually spent more time in Riyadh and Kabul than I have in LA in my lifetime, and that's a really bad trade-off from my perspective. Uh, and I also understand I'm competing against a Lakers game tonight, so it's really terrific that all of you are here. So many, many thanks. I thought I would start out by just telling you a little bit of the reason that I wrote this book. I'm not a gender studies person. Uh, in fact, I didn't come out of a gender studies background. Uh, my background is really more in development economics. But I do work on the Middle East, and I've spent uh, nearly a decade of traveling around and writing about the Middle East, uh, a lot of it from an economics perspective. And it, you know, one thing that uh, really hits you is that this is a part of the world 
where uh, women uh, have, for a whole variety of reasons, not realized their potential. Women have been underinvested uh, in, so half the human capital of, uh, of this region. And for me, the Middle East, uh, what I write about in the book includes not just the, the Arab world, but I write more broadly about, I include Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, I call it the greater Middle East. But, you know, it's a region across uh, the Arab world, Central Asia, that includes uh, very conservative um, Muslim-majority countries. And, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around and realize that women have struggle for their rights around the world, but in that part of the world, it has been a particularly complicated struggle. Not only are they up against very deep-seated culture, tradition, patriarchy, but they, there's also an overlay of a conservative uh, Islamic interpretation that uh, equates women's rights with some bad things in the world, in their view, feminism, materialism, westernism, in some places, communism. And it's been a, a, a real challenge for women to be able to articulate and promote uh, a vision of their rights without being labeled as somehow anti-culture, anti-tradition, anti-religion. It's hard enough to fight against culture, but when you're also fighting against religion, it's a very, very tough battle. Now, certainly there are many brave and courageous and well-organized secular feminists across the Middle East. In every country that I write about, there are secular feminists who have struggled and articulated and pushed uh, for women's rights, but their reach and their appeal has been limited, uh, mostly in uh, urban areas among uh, well-educated urban elites, and at a grassroots level, their appeal has been limited. And so today, you've seen now for several uh, decades at this point, you've had uh, a period of rising conservatism in the region. Today's young people are more conservative than their parents' generation. You know, you see, uh, you used to see in the streets of uh, Cairo, women dressed in miniskirts and Western clothes, and today, you know, 85% of Egyptians wear the headscarf. And you've seen this trend across the region. So you've got rising conservatism, particularly among young people, and you've also got rising um, a political Islam. And that political Islam, as I said, is really identified and equated women's rights uh, with something that is you know, anti-Islamic um, and anti-culture. Uh, and so it's been a, a very big struggle. And so today, when I travel around the region, I see women adopting a new approach. Now, some may say it's not a new approach. It's been an approach that's been around for more than a century, and in fact, four centuries. But what they're doing is they're arguing for women's rights within an Islamic framework. Now, this is not to say that secular approaches are, uh, are, are bad or, or not useful. I think that they're, they're you know, ultimately secularism is, um, is the system that we have and I'm thankful for it. But the countries that I write about in my book are not secular societies. They're not trending towards secular societies. And I think a lot of the women activists who are pushing for an improvement in women's rights and status uh, recognize that and some are approaching it from a position of deep faith. 
they truly believe that Islam is a progressive religion for, for women, that it has lots of progressive passages and accords lots of rights to women, uh, but it has been misinterpreted over the years. Some approach it from that perspective. Others, um, they say, you know, this is the society we live in, and I'm going to use the tools that are available to me, and they take a more tactical approach, and they're adopting an Islamic discourse to make the changes that they're trying to promote more palatable. And they're both types of people that I write about in my book. Let me give you some examples of some of the, um, of some of the women who have caught my attention over the years. The first is um, a woman named Muzda Mulia from Indonesia. She grew up in a very, very conservative household. Her grandfather was a very conservative cleric who uh, taught her that she was not allowed to laugh out loud. Uh, and that if she touched the hand of a foreigner, of a non-Muslim, that she had to go home and shower immediately because she was therefore unclean. And as she grew up and she, she studied and she is a very educated woman, she went off and got a PhD, she began to realize in her own words that Islam has many faces and that the rigid conservative orthodox interpretation of her, of her grandfather was not the, the only way to, uh, to approach her religion. And uh, she studied Arabic, uh, she got a PhD in Islamic thinking, and she has become a very uh, noted and senior Islamic scholar in Indonesia. And she is a, a real champion of women's rights and a fighter against some of these conservative clerics in the country who are arguing for Sharia and imposing very narrow interpretations. And in her words, she says, why, why are you so obsessed with these narrow uh, rules and restrictions? And, and it's not, she likes to say, it's not a fax from heaven. These are man-made laws and we can interpret them. And she really goes at it with the clerics, but she's been an inspiration to millions of uh, uh, Muslim women in Indonesia and throughout Southeast Asia. So she's one. Another woman that I write about in my book is uh, a very brave and courageous woman named Sakina Yakobi. In fact, all of these women are brave in one way or another. Uh, Musta Mulia has had threats against her life for her positions and stances that she's taken. Sakina Yakobi also has had threats against her life. She, uh, was, um, she grew up in Western Afghanistan. Her father sent her to the local mosque to be educated, which was very unusual in the 1960s, a very unusual approach for a father to choose to educate his daughter, but she, she did, until the mullah came to him and said, you know what, I have nothing left to teach this girl. She's memorized everything. She's, she's really gone beyond where, where I can even go with her. And as luck had it, there was a Peace Corps volunteer who happened to be living in the area who convinced the father to allow her to go to the United States to continue her education. She did. Meanwhile, her country disintegrated around her. And she found herself back um, in the 1980s during the terrible uh, period of uh, fighting and war, the Mujahideen against the Soviet occupation, and then in the 1990s with the Civil War and the Taliban in Afghanistan, running uh, schools and clinics for refugee children and women and children in Peshawar on the border. And her approach, she said, was to go and meet with the local leaders in the area. They happened to be clerics, mullahs, and explain to them why it was so important that the girls have an opportunity to go to school. And she got them on her side, she got them on board. She even got some of them to teach for her in these schools and she started teacher training programs. 
And before you knew it, she had a series of schools and clinics, uh, both for the refugees, Afghan refugees in Pakistan, and then uh, more after the Taliban fell across Afghanistan, she's now reaching hundreds of thousands of women and children. And what she says is, you know, she has to work within a very conservative system. And so she uses the, uh, the Quran as a methodology. You know, she goes and reads out passages to uh, the local tribal chiefs and the local clerics to convince them why she should be allowed to uh, open schools and teach education and healthcare to these uh, young girls and women. And uh, again, I, I do say she's a very brave woman. I know she has had uh, uh, numerous threats against her life for what she's doing, but she persists. A third woman that I write about is um, a woman named Sundus Abbas in Iraq. Now, she's a very secular woman. She grew up in a very secular time under Saddam Hussein, and now she lives in an increasingly conservative and religious environment in Iraq. And after the war, after uh, the, the toppling of Saddam Hussein, and she was very, very hopeful. She thought, all these Iraqi exiles are going to return to my country and bring um, you know, Western uh, enlightenment and progressive ideas. And it was very um, shocking and sad for her to see how uh, the country really went in a very different direction with tremendous violence and sectarianism and also very conservative uh, religious uh, edicts. And she said once to um, uh, one of the, the, the leaders uh, on, the, on the governing council, that, uh, the new government in Iraq, she said, why are there so few women in the government? And he said, oh, because there really aren't any women leaders in Iraq. You know, there aren't any women who could possibly serve in this position. And so she then made a decision that she was going to train women because she knew that there were lots of capable women out there and put them forward as leaders in the new Iraq. And so she started an organization, the Women's Leadership Institute, and she really focused her efforts on the very conservative, traditional Shia women who she knew would be a big part of the new emerging Iraq. And she describes how she works with these women at first, they're very reluctant, they're very shy, they're fully covered in the abaya, and she says, okay, let's just try to film for a minute. No, 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 I can't possibly do that. But then she coaxes them, and they come on camera, and she's training them for political office. And she describes the transformation. Suddenly, these women have gone from one minute to three minutes to five minutes on tape to making full-blown television commercials, running for office, getting elected, and being very articulate and determined spokespeople in parliament. So here's just another example. She's up against enormous uh, constraints. She's up against um, uh, a very conservative system, and she's trying to work within it and targeting, in particular, women who she knows are connected to that uh, conservative Shia political machine in, in Iraq today. The last woman I want to tell you about is uh, a woman named Dr. Haifa Jalala Lail who runs a women's college in Saudi Arabia. And she, she's, a, again, a very determined uh, and very courageous woman. She's really breaking lots of barriers. Uh, she runs this women's college, and she says, you know, what we want to do is we want to shatter walls. We want to create a new way for women to think about the world and to approach the world. And she's determined to teach 
something that very few students today anywhere in Saudi Arabia get, which is critical thinking skills. And so she has a very innovative uh, curriculum and pedagogy. And the first time I went to visit the school, some, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, the, the school, you know, it's Saudi Arabia. It's a very, very conservative society. The male professor was in one classroom teaching the students via video camera in another because they can't be together in the same room. I go back a few years later, and now half the girls have decided that they want to be in the classroom with the man. The other half is still separate. And she, Dr. Haifa explained, she got these girls, their parents to give permission, and it was okay with them. They, she allowed them to be in the classroom. I go back a few years later, all the female students are in the, in the, in the room with the, with the male professor. And when I say to them, you know, when I was here a few years ago, um, that it was totally segregated, the girls look at me and say, really? How long ago was that? Like, they can't even believe it. And I say, it was really just four years ago. So, slow change. I, this is not a revolutionary change. I mean, how big a change is it that women are now in the same classroom as the man? But, what's, but what is happening is they're beginning to change their ways of thinking and their attitudes. Now, what's behind some of these changes? Certainly rising levels of education. All of the women I just talked about are highly educated women. Some of them were educated in the West, uh, and some of them were educated uh, in their home countries. Um, Musta Mulia from Indonesia studied not only in Indonesia, but in Egypt at Al-Azhar. She studied Arabic. Dr. Haifa studied in California, here, uh, and got a PhD here in California. So rising levels of education, and these women are bringing their education home with them, and, uh, or, they, or they're getting their education at home, and they're really trying to drive change in their society. They're looking around and seeing huge gaps between their own expectations as individuals and what society allows them to do. And these women are not isolated cases. I could have written my book about any number of thousands of women that I've met. I just chose some of these women in the book because they had particularly interesting or compelling stories. Today, 63% of college graduates in Saudi Arabia are women. 70% of college graduates in Iran are women. There is uh, a real demographic shift going on. The Middle East is a region which has underinvested in female education. It's beginning to close those gaps, and we're beginning to see the results of it with more and more educated women demanding change. Another driver is media. There's been a media revolution in that part of the world. I'm sure you've heard about the rise of satellite television, Al Jazeera. We hear about uh, the bad parts, and there's certainly bad parts of the internet and, uh, and the television. Uh, we've all heard of the extremist views that are propagated on the internet. But there's also other things going on in the media. Many of you, I'm sure, are aware of, of a show in America called The View. There is an Arabic version of The View called Sweet Talk. And it's four women who sit around in a View-style format. Uh, one is Saudi, she wears a headscarf. One is Egyptian, one is Palestinian, one is, I think, Lebanese. And they talk about stuff that you might hear on The View in America. But they talk about very, very controversial and sensitive subjects, too. Domestic abuse, sexual violence, rape, incest. Can women drive in Saudi Arabia or not drive? 
what are the religious reasons and justifications for restrictions on women? They bring clerics on the show. They debate. And these are, these are conversations that are happening now in people's living rooms. 43% of viewers are men of the show. It's an interesting statistic. Another driver is economics. A lot of these women are demanding change and they're getting support from men who recognize that the, um, the economic costs of, uh, of the repressive system for women are significant and that they're only getting bigger and bigger in our global world. And so you see uh, today many leaders um, understanding that it's an imperative for them from an economic perspective, but for many other reasons too, but at least from an economic perspective to invest uh, in half their human capital. Countries like Morocco, which are, uh, you know, have had a very repressive and regressive system of laws and cultural attitudes towards women, are really trying to change that now. Um, uh, Jordan, you know, has really made a huge investment in women. I mean, you see this across the region, and I hear it put in economic terms more and more. You all know that women in Saudi Arabia can't drive. Um, last year in, and two years ago, a member of the Shura Council, an advisory council to the king, stood up, and he launched into a big harangue about women not being able to drive. Why? Because Saudi Arabia is forced to import labor to drive all these women around, and it's costing $4 billion in remittances that are being sent home to South Asia. So you can see that they're putting it in economic terms. And the women are picking up on that, and they're pushing their case. My Saudi chapter is called Channeling Khadijah. Khadijah was Muhammad's first wife, who was a very successful businesswoman. In fact, she hired Muhammad to drive her caravans, and he did such a good job that she proposed marriage to him, and he married her. He married his boss. And the Saudi women say, you know what? We want to be like Khadijah. We want the right to own our own businesses. We want the, the, we want the right to education that will allow us to work. You know, they're, they're trying to change and push within the system. Another driver is extremism. Extremism, we're well aware of here in our country and the effects of it on our country, but these countries have also experienced extremism within their own countries, and they're very conscious of it today. Now, um, Morocco had a whole spate of terrorist attacks inside Morocco. Saudi had terrorism within Saudi, and it was in some ways a wake-up call for people. And they began to discuss issues that had long been taboo, and one of them is the whole role of uh, of extremist religious in interpretations in the broader um, spectrum of extremism. And I would argue that extremist attitudes towards women, the, the grandfather who tells his, his young granddaughter that if she touches the hand of a Westerner, of a, of a non-Muslim, not a Westerner, of a non-Muslim, she must go home and shower because she's unclean. This is an extremist attitude that goes hand in hand with with other extremist attitudes. And so you now see more openness and debate on some of these questions. 
in the book I describe uh, a very um, harrowing um, incident in Saudi Arabia that happened in 2002. A girls' school caught on fire, and the fire broke out quickly, the hallways filled with smoke, the girls rushed out of the school, and they were not wearing their abayas. Lo and behold, in the, in the crisis, in the rush to exit, they forgot to cover up properly, as you can imagine. And the religious police on the street pushed the girls back into the school because they were not properly covered. And many girls died. And this really unleashed a wave of revulsion within Saudi society, with people asking, where did our religion go so wrong that you can, you can actually push a girl back into a burning building simply because her head's not covered? And these types of questions were asked publicly in newspapers, really for the first time, in a very long time in that country. And what you started to see are some changes. Now, these are not revolutionary changes. I'm not here saying that you know, Saudi suddenly becomes some liberal democracy. Of course it has not. But what you see happening today is a debate and a questioning of preconceived and deeply held notions. King Abdullah opened a new university, the University for Science and Technology, last fall with the goal of introducing more science and technology learning and knowledge in that part of the world. You know, the entire Arab world has received fewer patents than MIT does in one year. And there's an, one of the things he's done in opening this new university is allow men and women to be enrolled at the same time in the same place, co-education. Doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but this is a profound change in that country, and extremist views have come out against it. One of the senior uh, officials of the, of the government's ulama, religious leaders, denounced this mixing of the sexes as being un-Islamic, issued a fatwa against it. The king fired him. Now these are just little changes that are happening. And now you've had other religious leaders come out and say, no, it's not against Islam, this mixing. There's a debate going on. And one of the things I try to show in the book is that this is a debate going on within Islam, and women are very, very much a part of that debate today because they have so much at stake. These narrow rules and regulations fall hardest on them and they really have a tremendous interest in promoting a more uh, progressive interpretation of the text, and that's what they're trying to do. Now, this phrase I use in the book, Islamic feminism, of course, everyone says, oh, that's an oxymoron. And I think to many here in the West, it seems like an oxymoron. And I state right up front in the book that most of the people I write about in the book, they don't like the term. They don't like it for a variety of reasons. Some don't like it because they're secularists and they don't like the Islamic part. Others don't like it because they're in very traditional conservative societies and they don't like the feminist part, too much baggage. But ultimately what they're doing is they're trying to argue for women's rights by using Islamic discourse. And they're going back through history 
they're finding uh, uh, examples and justifications in history. They're finding uh, passages. They're finding interpretations. They're finding scholars. Um, and they're also uh, recontextualizing passages. Now, I won't stand up here and say that, that, uh, that I have not, uh, I mean, I have read the Koran, and there are passages that are problematic for women in there. But there are also lots of passages that are uh, supportive of women's rights. And what the Islamic feminists are doing is they're trying to emphasize those passages that are progressive and focus on the spirit of what's behind it. And they're trying to recontextualize the difficult passages. And as we all know, this is a process that has happened really with all religions throughout history. And the women today, some of them are becoming scholars themselves. And I talked about extremism as a role in this. You know, in Morocco, they started a whole program to train women as preachers, as, as Islamic preachers. They're called Morshidat. They can do everything a man can do except lead the Friday prayers. And one of the reasons, one of the justifications for doing this was that uh, it would help temper extremism within, Muslim, within Moroccan society. Now, whether or not it's working, I can't say. It's too new a program. But other countries are following suit. Turkey has its own program. Qatar has a program. Egypt has a program. And so you see countries are taking steps to um, incorporate women's views into the production of religious discourse. And this is something really quite new. Um, again, people look at history and say, well, women, uh, there have been Muslim scholars throughout the ages, but they've been pretty few and far between. There are examples of it. Um, but today, you have this you know, educated generation of women who are really beginning to engage with the text uh, in, a, in a, I would argue, in a pretty unprecedented fashion. So where does all this lead us? How quickly are these changes occurring? Are they occurring in a uniform way, across the board? No. This will not be a linear process. It will happen more quickly in some places, more slowly in others. Um, you can see some countries, as they you know, reach a tipping point in terms of female education, female economic participation, female political participation, um, these things come together and you see them moving in a, um, from a women's perspective in a positive direction. Others, it's gonna be a very long, slow slog. I mean, Saudi Arabia is probably the most conservative country in the region. And it will be a very, very long, slow, multi-generational process. But the women are learning from each other across the region. And I see signs of a, of a, of a global movement emerging. So in Morocco in 2004, they were a, the women were able to, after many, many years of trying, to reform their family law, their mudawana in Morocco. And they did it after you know, decades of trying. They really started in the 1970s and they kept butting up against, well, you can't do this because it's against the Sharia. And so finally the women went and they got the clerics to look at it and to see the changes that they were asking for and find Islamic interpretations and justifications and sort of bless the changes 
And in fact, they were able with, with some support from the king and support from women's groups and a big broad-based grassroots movement to make these changes and reform the laws in 2004. They greatly restricted uh, polygamy. Uh, they raised the age of marriage. Uh, they made uh, women have more rights in divorce and in custody, very sensitive family issues. And women's groups around the region watched this and saw how they were successful in doing this and have copied the strategy and launched uh, similar movements in other countries. Iran, for example, the women in Iran explicitly copied uh, what the Moroccan women did, and they, they launched a movement called the Million Signature Campaign. It's a grassroots-based movement where they're going out throughout all the different provinces of the country and collecting a million signatures, demanding reform of the laws. And the, the women who've been behind the Million Signature Campaign movement in Iran are very brave and courageous women. They've been in and out of prison. The government is, is afraid of them, keeps locking them up, repressing them. But you can see in June of last year, it was women who were out on the streets demanding change, demanding reform. And the, the, I would argue that the government has been very successful at, at squashing and repressing this movement, but it cannot get rid of it. These are determined people. They are committed to change. And we have the first year anniversary of the Green Movement coming up, and I can predict you're gonna see women out on the streets again in Iran. Last year, I went to Malaysia, and there, uh, there was uh, the launch of a global movement called Musawa, which means equality. And it brought together many of the women I happen to have written about in my, in my book that I've met over the years. They all came together in this, you know, not, not because they happen to be in my book, just because they are the leaders of many of these different movements around the broader Middle East. But there were, there were hundreds of women there and men who gathered together to launch this global movement to reform Muslim family laws. And there were women from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, Morocco, from Europe, from the United States, from all over, sharing tactics, sharing best practices, strategizing, uh, you know, learning from each other, encouraging each other. And you know, I was a fly on the wall. I was there just simply to observe and to write about it. But I was really quite amazed. Women from Africa, and they were all understanding, that's what you're experiencing, that's what we're experiencing, what has worked in your society, what can work in ours. You know, they have um, manuals which they're using and translating into different languages to be able to convince husbands, fathers, local mullahs, more senior religious leaders, tribal chiefs, of why certain changes should be made. And they're, they're coordinating and, uh, and uh, supporting each other in a way that I think we're gonna see more and more of and hear more about. So, one of the questions I'm often asked is, what can, what can we do? Do we have any role in this? We Americans. And I used to think that we're warned that if we reach out and help, that it taints these efforts and that there's this you know, backlash that will occur because we're American and 
uh, and then they'll be labeled as somehow, you know, stooges of the West. And I'm less concerned about that today than I used to be for a variety of reasons, but mainly because the women that I've met in writing this book, they're very smart, sophisticated women, and they know, they know their situation better than anybody. They know whether an outstretched hand from the United States is gonna hurt or help them. And it's up to them to make that decision. And so I think you've, you know, I'm sure you've read about how um, civil society groups in Iran really discouraged the United States from allocating $75 million to support civil society in Iran. Well, we should have listened to that. You know, there was people on the ground saying, don't do this. But all of the women I wrote about, I mean, that I talked about tonight, all of them have in one way or another been supported by, uh, by Western groups. Muzda Mulia, the Indonesian woman, she was awarded a Woman of Courage Award by our State Department in 2007. And she deliberated, should I accept this award or not? Is it gonna hurt me or help me? And in the end, she decided it will help me more than hurt me. And she flew to Washington and she collected the award. And of course, there were the, you know, charges of, oh, you're now, a, you know, a Western agent leveled against her. But on the other hand, it really increased her international stature. It gave her prominence, which has been helpful to her in her own country. Sakina Yakubi, the Afghan woman, she raises a lot of money in the United States. She raises money in Europe, Canada, the United States. And as she says to me, why shouldn't I? The entire Afghan government's on the dole. Why can't I take some money from the West? Why does that somehow make me inauthentic or, or um, you know, a Western agent? Um, and if, if Western groups were not funding her, she really would have almost no money. You know, she really is very dependent on, uh, on the support that she gets uh, from the West. Sundas Abbas, the Iraqi woman, she too, her small NGO in Iraq uh, gets money uh, from Western sources. And even Dr. Haifa in Saudi, a rich country, she doesn't need to raise money in the United States, but what she does do is she signs um, and, and develops relationships with Western organizations because it gives her some stature. There are few things that are looked upon very favorably in that part of the world from, from America. One of them is higher education. So Dr. Haifa has a joint venture agreement with Duke University to bring engineering and computer science to Saudi girls to train them. So all of these women are in one way or another developing relationships and partnerships uh, with, with Western organizations, with uh, Western funding sources uh, from a technical perspective. And so I encourage you, if you're interested, and if you feel uh, that these are important issues, and I can assure you that they are, we all have a vested interest in the success of these women in improving their status, in, uh, in changing their societies from within. Because ultimately, the changes that I see as necessary to incur, we're not gonna force them to happen. You know, these are, this is their battle to fight, but we can help them, we can support them, and there are not lots of great organizations here in the United States that work 
on the ground uh, with women's groups around the world. And I encourage you to find out about them, to engage with them. My, I have a website, Paradise Beneath Her Feet. You can go on the website. There are links to many different organizations there, then we'll tell you about them. Uh, and so I hope that you'll uh, read more about this, uh, read the book, and understand that uh, their struggle is, uh, is our struggle too. Thank you. I was curious if you would comment on how the Muslim women, Muslim women of Chechnya fit into that whole sort of uh, perspective on Muslim women in the Middle East, even though they're not technically part of the Middle East, they seem to me that they figure a lot in how that area is coming to terms with women and Islamic religion. You know, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't know a lot about Chechnya. Um, you know, there's a, um, there's a strong communist history there, uh, which I know from Afghanistan complicates the situation because um, the, and I just, I really don't know the history of Chechnya. In Afghanistan, the, the communist role, I mean, the Soviets came in and really uh, stressed women's rights and women's empowerment, but in a way, you know, shoved it down the throats of the Afghan people in a way that uh, created, you know, um, a backlash. And today, it's interesting, so many of the, you know, senior educated women in Afghanistan, they were educated under the Soviets um, because that was it, you know? And, uh, and yet, you know, that, that approach was so suspect, which is one of the reasons that um, it was sort of a rallying cry of the Mujahideen in the 1980s was, you know, we would rather, you know, fight and die than have our girls forced to go to these atheist schools. And, uh, um, you know, I'm not answering your Chechnya question. I really don't know, I don't know about Chechnya, but when you look at um, the history of many of these countries, it's, the whole issue of women's rights is wrapped up in such a complicated historical narrative in so many respects, which is why today uh, these women's groups are really struggling to chart a course that, uh, uh, you know, is a, they have very little room to maneuver. I don't know if you know much about the example of Azerbaijan. It's also a 92% Muslim country, which was uh, in, I believe, 1918 or 17, their first attempt at uh, being a republic was a, a country that gave the right, of women, right to women to vote long before the United States did, actually. And in fact, they're celebrating the Republic Day next Thursday. Uh, but the real question I wanted to ask is, you, you talked about a lot of optimistic stories, but certainly a lot of people who challenge the religious establishments in the particularly the Arab Muslim world, have to flee those countries and come to the West to do their work. You didn't talk about any examples of women that have suffered as a result of challenging the, uh, the religious establishments, and certainly there must be some examples of that as well. Oh, I mean, uh, undoubtedly. I think we, we, we know those examples uh, all too well. Um, you know, every one of the women I talked about has had their life threatened, and writing the book, I was so nervous, one of them would, in fact, be assassinated and still might. Um, in the book, there, there are harrowing stories of women who have lost their life or, uh, or lost you know, their children's life. Uh, one of the women I write about, uh, Salama al-Khafaji, who's an Iraqi politician, uh, she was uh, ambushed and her son was killed and uh, she survived. 
Uh, I mean, and her husband divorced her because she was a very forceful, um, uh, passionate politician. And he said, you know, no, no more. And she said, I'm doing this for my country. And they have suffered enormously and they continue to suffer. And this will not be an easy process by any means, but what they're trying to do is, um, is work within a system and find ways to carve out space to make it uh, feasible and plausible for what they're trying to do. And uh, I think if you, if you read the book, you'll see that it's cautiously optimistic, but you know, it's going to be a very long struggle, an intergenerational struggle. My name and I was wondering first if you've been to, the, to Iran, if you had the chance to go there. And if so, then I had a question. Yes. <laughs> and then how do you see, um, because I see a, a really huge gap between what's happening in Iran and these other Muslim countries that you mentioned. And um, how do you see if there's a change that happens in Iran would affect these other countries because the gap is so big, in my opinion, throughout, like, with the education, with how females are ruling in the country and changing things, so. And what I write in the book is that if there's a change in Iran, that Iran will emerge as the most secular country in the region. It is, uh, it's a country where the people have lived under oppressive theocracy for three decades, and, uh, and they're tired of it. And they, they want, I think, a more uh, separation between mosque and state. And the green movement is not, uh, and has not been, uh, um, a secular movement. It's been a reform movement. But at some point, I think it will be a secular movement. And I think that um, the, you're right that women in Iran are the most advanced in the, in the region, uh, although they live under one of the most repressive legal systems. And there's a huge gap between the lived reality of their life and the legal system that is imposed on them. But uh, when I was in Iran, I was there for a couple of weeks. Uh, I work for the Council on Foreign Relations. I can't go as a tourist to Iran. Uh, I somehow, that's another very long story, but I finagled a visa to go uh, as a guest of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But I had uh, minders with me the entire time, and they had young girls who were my minders, there were three of them, and they told me that they begged not to have this assignment. Uh, they thought it was a career-limiting move, and they really didn't want to do it. But we spent a lot of time together, and we became friends, and they told me all about themselves and their lives, and they took me to their you know, ho homes, and I went to their uh, extracurricular activities, which happened to be going to fire guns on a firing range, or their Taekwondo classes. And um, at the end of my uh, stay in Iran, I was asked uh, to go visit the bursar. The bursar, I didn't know what, what that even meant, you know? So I go into this office and there's a man there who presents me with a bill for my minders. <laughs> Payable in cash in US dollars. And I didn't know what to say, I didn't know what to do. Because on the one hand, I would be darned if I'm gonna pay the Iranian government for my minders. On the other hand, I didn't wanna to go to jail. Like, I didn't know what to do, and I sort of sat there for once in my life, speechless. And the young woman who was my minder at that moment, she launches into a tirade, a Farsi tirade, screaming at this man, 
three other men come running in. She's screaming at them. She's screaming at everybody. And it goes on and on, and these men are sort of cowering at the end. She takes the bell. She rips it up like this, drops it on the table, and she looks at me and says, there was a mistake. <laughs> and she's the future of Iran, I will tell you. Hi, uh, my name is Fiza. Um, I, let me start by saying thank you, because I feel like... Um, for the most part, I felt like your perspective was to see, um, not in a condescending way, I felt like you tried to see it from the viewpoint of the Muslim women that you were observing. But I'd like you to talk on that perspective because I think a lot of times when women's issues, Muslim women's issues are discussed, they're discussed from a very Western interpretation. And I understand that being in a Western country, but um, sometimes that could come off very condescending. And I think it's really important how you were talking about within the context of the women that live in their countries and they're working within their systems, why it's important to be able to view it from their perspective and not to put um, this kind of like judgmental viewpoint because I think all that does is just make it very, like it widens the gap between how we view the Western world and how we view the Muslim world. That's my Question. Well, I, I hope you'll read the book, but it's really written through the stories of the women that I have met over the years. Um, it's, it's their perspectives. It's their language. Uh, and listen, some of them have made choices that I don't necessarily agree with, but that's really not in the book. It's, it's for you to, you to determine what you think of it. Just clarifying. I, I think the way you present it, actually, I preferred it, but I feel like I feel like that's rare for me to find a speaker or an author who comes from a non-Muslim background that speaks in that way. And so for me, I, I am very appreciative that you approached it that way and that you approached it from the stories of the women. But I'd like you to speak on the larger context of, um, I don't understand why it's so difficult in general for, I don't know if it well, is. Well, I think we, I mean, the, the, the fact is, you know, we have stereotypes of each other. So it's, it's hard when, when we have stereotypes. They have stereotypes of us. You know, the, in the Middle East, one of the most popular shows is, is Baywatch. And, you know, in their minds, all American women are Pamela Anderson. And, um, you know, they, I, I, have, I, have, uh, I have Arab women have said to me, well, you know, we don't want to be like you American women. You see, we love our husbands and we love our children. <laughs> You know, there's, I mean, we, we each have stereotypes of the other. And uh, I, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I think these are really complicated but really important issues. And I just hope to increase understanding here. And I also help, hope to increase awareness there because I, I think, I, you know, the book focuses on five countries, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And I had Saudis say to me, oh my gosh, how could you possibly juxtapose Saudi Arabia with Afghanistan? You know, we have nothing in common with a country like that. But actually, I think the, there is, a, in some ways, a shared experience at some level of, um, of, of women across these countries. Yes, they're hugely different. And, and that's reflected in the book. They, they, you know, Saudi's a very rich country. Women live, a, for most part, a very privileged life in some respects. 
Afghanistan's a terribly poor country. It's racked by war and violence. And, you know, one of the lowest literacy rates for women in the world, one of the highest female mortality rates in the world. Totally different experiences. But there are some universal experiences across it, too. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what to say other than, um, yeah, we, we, we all have stereotypes. And uh, I think it does... Um, lead to a lot of misunderstanding, but on both sides. Kim, I wonder if you could say anything about the uh, problem of the toleration of the so-called honor killings. Honor crimes and honor killings um, are, are a terrible problem. I mean, there's, by, by some estimates, roughly 5,000 women die from honor crimes, but others think it's actually quite a lot higher and not reported. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, in, in some countries, it's, it's justified on Islamic grounds. And yet, uh, there are some very brave people who are fighting it on Islamic grounds and saying there's no justification. And so you do, you see that, um, that battle going on. It is a culturally driven practice. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of honor residing in, the family's honor residing in girls. Um, many of you might be familiar with the story of Mukhtar Mai, who was the Pakistani woman who was gang raped for some you know, perceived transgression of her younger brother. And the village elders met in a rural area in Pakistan and decided that the, f the punishment for the brother would be to gang rape the sister. And they did, and she was forced after this terribly violent act to walk half naked across the village home. And, um, and then she was expected to commit suicide. And she even asked her brother to go buy the acid that she would drink, and he was about to go do it when something changed in her. And she said, no, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm angry. And it was her local mullah who supported her, who said, you know, justice has not been done here. And he talked about it in Friday prayers in front of the whole village. And it was then picked up by the local news media. It was then picked up by the international news media. Books have been written about her. She received, you know, a big Glamour magazine, you, you know, Women of Courage Award, all sorts of things. But, you know, she's just one example. My only point is that uh, as much as it is justified on Islamic grounds, there are people trying to fight it using the same theology. But these are deeply embedded cultural practices that are going to take a, you know, a lot of effort to change. Hi, my name is Jessica Proitt, and um, you mentioned that there, you mentioned some men when you were talking about this, and I was wondering how strong is the presence of men who are involved in this movement, and is it purely mainly economic, like you mentioned, or um, just basically how, to what level are men in, um, invested in this? I think, I mean, I think that there are um, many, many men who are very heavily invested in this from different perspectives. Um, some are fathers, some are husbands, some are brothers, some are national leaders who see this as really important. Um, some are religious scholars. I mean, in, in Iran, uh, the women have been very smart uh, in going to some of the very senior clerics in the country looking for legitimacy and support. Um, in Shiism, there are 12 grand ayatollahs, the highest level of religious authority within the Shia world. 
One of them is Grand Ayatollah Sistani in Karbala in Iraq. Um, another is Grand Ayatollah Saneh in Iran, and the women call him the women's mufti because he gives them very progressive rulings, which they then use on their websites, in their literature, uh, to help convince people that what they're saying is theologically accurate and right. Um, so they're religious scholars. I mean, somebody asked the question about where, where um, the intellectual work is done. Yes, some of these um, scholars are, have left the Middle East and left uh, Pakistan and the, the Arab world, and they live here in this country where they have much more intellectual and academic freedom, and their ideas are slowly making their way back into that part of the world. Um, Khaled Abu al-Fadl, he's at UCLA. He's used his, his writings and his theological discourses used by a lot of these women's groups in the Middle East. You know, they look to scholars like him. They look to uh, religious leaders. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, the reform of the Mudawana in Morocco. The king was very instrumental in that. Uh, women in Kuwait got the right to vote a couple of years ago. The emir was very helpful in that process. So you have uh, men at all different levels who um, are supportive, some publicly, some behind the scenes. Uh, but then, of course, you have men who are fighting tooth and nail against it. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. Um, I would like to say that I'm a Muslim and... Uh, <clears throat> I did not read the Quran, I studied the Quran from the one end to the other end. And unfortunately in Middle East, uh, the problem there is, is the cultural and plus misinterpretation of the Quran by the special group for the political or personal use that manipulate the people. And exactly you mentioned, because of the lower education of the people, they can understand it. And a lot, a lot of the you mentioned, uh, somebody mentioned in the honor killing, if anybody of you guys go to the library, you find the Quran, it says anything about the honor killing, I'll buy you lunch. <laughs> These are all misinterpreted, and I wanted to mention that also we have a huge group in uh, Los Angeles that we are fighting with the same thing. We are trying to bring a pure Islam out of this Middle Eastern culture. We are trying to bring it out to find out what is a real Islam. As I mentioned, please go look at the Quran to find out 90% of the stuff that Taliban or Al-Qaeda stuff they do, it is not in the Quran, and they are totally hijacking the Quran themselves. I, I think we have an Islamic feminist in the back here. <laughs> but let me, let me just say one, one comment, which is um, many of the women say that one of the profound changes is the ability to read the Quran in their own language, because uh, they've always been forced to read the Quran in Arabic, and that's fine for Arabs, but you know, the Pakistanis and the Iranians and the Indonesians and the Afghans, they don't speak Arabic. They don't learn Arabic, and they really don't even understand what they're reading. And by the way, the mullahs don't understand it. You know, many of them are illiterate, and so you know, they're, they're going on uh, a lot of hearsay, I guess. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here tonight. <laughs>